Folks, once again tonight, if you would please turn to the book of Revelation. And last, uh, my notes, we left off after chapter 7. We'll be in chapter 8 this evening. <coughs> tonight I want to talk to you about the trumpets of tribulation. We're looking at the time when this world's going to be in what we know. As a matter of fact, tonight we'll be looking at the time what many call the great tribulation period. Revelation chapter 8. Now, I'll tell you right up front, I apologize. I don't have any handouts for you this evening. I thought about it about 4 o'clock this afternoon, and I tried to start trying to get something typed up, and it just wasn't working right. So uh, this is pretty easy to follow tonight. Shouldn't have any problems. Pretty straightforward. Uh, I know there are a lot of folks who approach this different than I do, and I'll explain that. In just a little bit, I believe that the way that I approach it is right, not because it's the way I approach it, but because it's biblical. And so that's what we're going to look at this evening. Now, I'll read the first verse. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll get into the study. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Father, tonight as we look at this passage, I pray we'll be in tune with you. We'll be uh, not distracted, but we'll be here in the moment with you in your word wanting to hear what it is you're saying. Father, thank you for recording this for us, for giving us a preview of what's going to happen. Father, I thank you most of all that when I study through this, I'm reminded of your grace. I'm reminded of the fact that because of Jesus Christ, during this time of tribulation, it's not wrath that I'll have to face because your grace has removed me from that. And I pray that each one of us as Christians would understand that we should be thankful, Father, but that we also should have a sense of urgency for a lost world, that we would be sharing the gospel of Christ with those we know. In Christ's name, amen. Now, folks, we have seen how God's judgment has been wrapped up in a seven-sealed scroll. The first six seals have been broken, and with the breaking of those six, first six seals, we've seen war, we've seen chaos, death, destruction, calamity on an unprecedented scale. Now those on the earth during this time, we know is the tribulation, they'll surely think that the end has come. Uh, but when the seventh seal opens, rather than finally experiencing the end, we're ushered in to another period of judgment introduced by the blowing of seven different trumpets. And, and the time of the blowing of the trumpets is even more horrible, more terrible than the breaking of the seven seals. Then after the seventh trumpet is blown, we're ushered into another time. It's a period of judgment. Uh, it talks about seven vials or seven bowls of wrath. That's even a greater judgment that's going to be poured out upon this earth. Now, each series of judgments become more intensified. They kind of build upon one another. So my question to you is this. Why does God not just get it over with quickly? Well, understand, I know some preachers preach this. They're wrong. They say it's because God wants to prolong the agony. No, that is not the case. Not the case at all. I think Ezekiel answers it for us. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. He gives us the answer. He says, Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Now, I think it makes it very clear that the reason... It is prolonged. God's judgment is stretched out and prolonged is because God loves mankind. 
God is long-suffering with mankind. Now, with the opening of the seven seals, we see a world that is ruined by sin, right? We have seen that already. With the blowing of the seven trumpets, what we see is a world that is ruled by Satan. And soon in our study, we're going to be introduced to Satan's Superman, the Antichrist. Now, he's been waiting while the seal judgments were tearing the world apart and reducing this earth to chaos. And so when the time's right and when men are going to be ready for anyone to step on the world stage, anyone that they believe is wise enough and powerful enough to bring peace and sanity back to this world, that's when this satanic superman who's been standing in the wings is ready to take over and take his place on the world stage. Now, with the emptying of the seven bowls, after we've seen the seals, after the trumpets, then come the seven vials or the seven bowls. After the emptying of those seven vials, we see the rescue of the Savior. So what I want you to get is we're seeing all of this tribulation period is simply the movement of history toward the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how many times have you heard me say in our study in the book of Revelation, it's beast. It's not all about numbers. It's not about what's taking place here in this world. The book of the Revelation is all about Jesus Christ. The whole book, the whole Bible is all about Jesus Christ. I've told you before, how many times in the book of the Revelation is the word throne and the word lamb used? See, it's all about Jesus and the world getting ready for Jesus to come back. Now, as we study these seven trumpets, which tonight we'll start on that, we're only going to get through the first four probably tonight. We need to keep in mind the first four trumpets, they are war trumpets. The last three trumpets, they're what's called woe trumpets. You have the war trumpets and the woe trumpets. So with the blowing of the first four trumpets, there is an intensification, I guess you'd say, of the havoc that was wrought about by the opening of the sixth seal. And with the blowing of these trumpets, we're being ushered into that period of time known by many theologians as the Great Tribulation. So in verse 1, the first scene that I want you to see tonight is a silent deliberation. Look at verse 1 again. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of a half an hour. Now, up to this point, think about it. Heaven has been a place of worship, of praise, joy. There's been shouts. There's been adoration. Uh, but now it's quiet. It's so quiet in heaven, you can, you can almost hear the rustling of the angels' wings. Because this is the first and only time in the history of all eternity that heaven has been absolutely quiet. It's almost like heaven, all of heaven, is holding its breath, waiting with anticipation to see what is about to take place. Now, let me give you the idea of the silence that's being spoken of here. And I'll put it in modern examples. Think of a courtroom where a man's on trial for his very life. The jury comes back in. The judge asks the foreman, have you reached a verdict? The foreman says, yes, Your Honor, we have. And then for 30 minutes, not a word is said. Or a man's in the doctor's office. He's suffering from a terminal illness. The doc, he's waiting in the doctor's office. The doc comes in with the x-rays. The man looks at the doctor. He says, doctor, tell me, what's the prognosis? And for 30 minutes, that doctor doesn't say a word. He just looks at the x-rays. Now, I'm going to tell you, in both cases, in both places, there would be a shattering sound of silence. Don't you think? That silence would be louder than any noise you've ever heard. That is the silence that's being spoken of in heaven here in verse 1. Now, let's think about the reason for this silence. Why has the curtain of silence fallen over heaven? Well, 
Folks, in my own words, it's because the final curtain of history is about to be raised. The final chapter of all time, as we know it, is about to be revealed. So all of heaven is absolutely frozen in awe with anticipation. You know, there are people, maybe some of you here tonight, you've experienced this being in Oklahoma, where you've went through a tornado. Anybody here ever done that? Well, you know, when a tornado, before it hits, and I heard people say this, I didn't understand it until I actually was involved in it. But when a tornado, before it hits, there is a deafening silence. There is a quiet. There is a calm that takes place. It's strangely still, but then that tornado comes with all its destruction. Well, this silence that we're uh, told about here in verse 1 is the lull before the storm. You see, God's intensified judgment is about to be hurled down on planet Earth. Now, the prophet Zephaniah said it like this. Zephaniah 1, verse 7. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Now, folks, a half an hour may not seem like a long time to you and me. But I want to tell you, if you're in the midst of terror and horror and danger, a minute can seem like eternity. I think about in my former life as a, a firefighter and a paramedic, how many times that we were cutting people out of a car wreck and how the, 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 the seconds and the minutes must have just crept by for those people. I mean, they were trapped. They were scared to death. And, and we were hurrying as fast as we could, but I know 10 minutes must have seemed like 10 hours. I can think about my own personal experience. When you're trying to find a child trapped in a house that's on fire, those minutes seem like eternity. God's trumpets of judgment, they're about to be blown. Now look at verse 2. It says, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And you know, think about this, folks. Nothing can shatter the silence like the blast of a trumpet can, can shatter it. It'll get your attention. Well, trumpets in the Bible, they were used for various purposes. I know this. Trumpets were used, uh, for instance, a uh, trumpet was used to call people to worship. It was used to call people to work. It was also used to call people to war, times of war. And the only ones qualified to blow those trumpets were the priests. <coughs> and there were different sounds for each occasion. So it was important that the priests blow that trumpet with a proper sound. Now you can just imagine how important it was that the sound for warfare not be confused with the sound for worship. That's the reason Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, 8, he says, for if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself for battle? Now, these seven trumpets are to announce to us the great day of God's wrath, and they're to prepare this earth for the day of God's judgment. That's why God doesn't want one sour note hit when these trumpets are played. That's why when they're played, they're going to be played at the right time and the right key. These trumpets that are being spoken of here, they're not worship trumpets. Time for worship on this earth is over with at this time. They're not work trumpets. Time for work's done. The time Jesus spoke about when man should work because night comes when no man can work, that's the time we're in right now. These are not worship trumpets. They're not work trumpets. They're war trumpets because God has declared war on a world that's rejected His Son, Jesus Christ. Just as the walls of Jericho fell when the, the priest seven trumpets on the seventh 
Well, when the angels blow these trumpets, the walls of this world are going to come tumbling down. And then those of us Christians, we're going to say along with Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord, and it was Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. I want you to see the second thing. Look at verse 3. We've seen the reason for the silence. It's a lull before the storm. Now look at verse 3, the reaction to the silence. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it <coughs> with the prayers of all the saints, of all saints, upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Now a censer, folks, is a vessel that holds incense. And what you, if you don't know this, what you need to know, incense in the Bible is a symbol of prayer. It's a symbol of prayer and intercession. The psalmist said this, Psalm 141, 2, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. This incense represents the prayers of God's people. Now notice uh, in verse 3, notice this censer contains the prayers of all the saints. Let me explain this to you. That means all the prayers of all the saints throughout all of the ages are in heaven during this time. We sometimes, I think, get the idea that God, maybe He doesn't hear our prayers, or if He does hear our prayers, He forgets them. Well, let me give you some encouragement. This ought to be tremendous encouragement for you in your prayer life. You need to know that all true prayer is heard and all true prayer is never forgotten. God not only hears our prayers, He holds our prayers. Every prayer prayed by every child of God is stored in heaven's vault. It's almost like this. Uh, I know some of you uh, mothers do this and grandmothers. I don't know if any of you men do. If you do, it's okay. I'm not going to make fun of you for it. But uh, uh, you scrapbook, right? You put things in a scrapbook because they're precious to you. Well, in essence, the, our prayers, they go in God's scrapbook. They are precious to Him. He holds on to them. He hears our prayers, holds our prayers, and one day we're told He'll heed them and honor those prayers. But we're also taught something else. Maybe you never thought about this. When He talks about prayers of the saints, did you know that the coming judgment of God on this world and the coming of God's kingdom, uh, the wrath that's to come on this world during the tribulation period, and the coming again of Jesus Christ, do you realize, folks, <coughs> that all of that is an answer to the prayers of God's people? You say, how is that? Well, did not Jesus teach us to pray? And did He not say, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done? When you pray, that's what you're praying for. Now, I know that sounds like a harmless, uh, innocuous petition, folks, but it's not. It's a prayer that actually requests three things. When you pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, this is what you're asking for. Number one, you're asking for the wicked to be destroyed. Number two, you're asking for the righteous to be restored. And number three, you're asking for the Savior to return and rule and reign over this world. And the prayers of the saints are involved in the judgment of the sinner. Have you ever thought about that? That's what we're taught. Now look at verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> Let's see what it says here. When the prayers uh, ascend to God, then judgment descends from God. Look at verse 4 and 5. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices or noises and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. Now, folks, I want to back up. I, I went, went over something too quick. Look back at verse 3. Notice it mentions an altar. 
that talks about the golden altar. Now I want you to remember something. An altar, remember this, it was a place of sacrifice, and the sacrifice being there was a place of judgment. Now let me explain what I'm talking about here. When God sacrificed His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the altar of the cross, the fire of God's judgment fell upon Him. For God's fire always falls on the altar of sacrifice, folks. So let me say this from this point. If you reject God's sacrifice, then the fire of God's judgment is going to fall on you. It fell on Jesus. You can receive that sacrifice or you can reject it, and that judgment can fall upon you. The altar, again, is not only a place of sacrifice, it's a place of judgment. If you accept the sacrifice, you avoid the judgment. If you reject the sacrifice, you receive the judgment. That's why we're taught. That's why we need to learn what Hebrews 10, verse 26 says, 26 and 27. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversary. Now here's what I want you to keep in mind, folks. God's judgment at this time is being poured out upon this earth, not because of what this earth has done, but because of what this earth has not done. You say, I'm not sure I understand. Well, let me put it this way. There are some people who think that, well, people go to hell because they do bad things. Okay? We go to hell because of our sin. Friend, listen to me. I understand what they're saying, but the reality is Jesus died for our sins, did he not? If a person goes to hell, they don't go to hell because of what they did. They go to hell because of what they failed to do. They failed to surrender and accept Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. So there's the silent deliberation in heaven. But I want you to see the second scene that unfolds <coughs> is the, the desolation. I'd say the shattering desolation on earth. The silence in heaven is broken by that sound of the first trumpet. And with the blowing of these war trumpets, we see destruction and desolation on an unparalleled scale. We're told that a third of the earth as we know it's going to be destroyed. Now, let me say this while I'm on this point before I get into these, the, the, the four trumpets blowing. <clears throat> before I get into the judgments of the trumpets. I realize there are those who interpret the figures in, in these verses symbolically. They don't take these judgments as literal, physical judgments upon the earth. I do. And let me give you three reasons why I do. Number one, because of the words of Jesus himself. Luke chapter 21, beginning verse 25. Jesus said, And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear, and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven will be shaken. I believe this is true, what we're fixing to read, because of what Jesus said, number one, first and foremost, but also because of the witness of Scripture. The prophet Joel prophesied about these exact physical events. In Joel chapter 2, verse 30, says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. Isaiah prophesied of similar events taking place. Isaiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy the sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give the light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. So there is the words of Jesus. There's the witness of Scripture. But also the third thing, the wickedness of the sinner. Isaiah said these things come as a response to the evil upon the earth. Isaiah 13, verse 11. 
God says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. So as we examine, folks, the blowing of these four trumpets, we see each trumpet brings a different type of physical destruction. A different part of the earth is affected when each one of these trumpets are blown. So number one, notice first of all, verse 6 and 7, there's the fiery storm. <clears throat> and the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood. And they were cast upon the earth, and the third part of trees was burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now let's bring this into perspective. Just imagine... Folks, if you will, and we're going to limit the judgment for just a minute to America, okay? And just imagine if a third of America's forests were burned down. Imagine if a third of America's wheat fields, a third of America's uh, fruited plains were burnt down. Just imagine, folks, uh, that a third of our country becoming a parched desert just like that. Think about how that would affect the food supply if a third of the world is destroyed like that. The Greek word for trees that's used here usually means fruit trees. Now, furthermore, think of the destruction of pasture lands. The green grass is gone. How devastating that would be to the meat market, to the, to the, the milk industries. Think about the smoke and the pollution in the air with a third of the world on fire. Think of how many birds of the air, beasts of the field that would die. I'm telling you, the balanced scales of our uh, ecological system, it'd be tilted drastically into the side of total destruction. Now look at verses 8 and 9. After the fiery storms come the polluted seas. And the second angel sounded as it were, uh, sounded, and as it were a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood. Verse 9. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and the third part of the ships were destroyed. Now remember something. Ocean... Uh, the oceans, they cover three-quarters of the world's surface. So if one-third of the oceans are contaminated, what we just read here means that one-quarter of the entire world is going to be covered with blood. Fish are going to die at a record number. Uh, think about ships being destroyed. If a third of the ships at sea are destroyed, the, the maritime industry would be in total chaos. Major oil spills that happen every day that are on the news now, they wouldn't be nothing more than a blot on the kitchen cabinet. In those days, think about the beaches bathed in blood, ships washing up on the shore. Then look at verses 10 and 11. We're told about a falling star. <clears throat> and the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. And it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. Now, I want you to think about something, folks. Nobody knows exactly how many stars are out there. You ever heard anybody say, I know exactly how many stars are in our universe? No. There's no way to know in the solar systems, folks, uh, galaxies. Even the most powerful telescope can't see that far. But here's the amazing thing I want you to get. God knows how many are out there, and he's numbered every one of them. He not only numbers them, he knows who they are. Matter of fact, the psalmist says, Psalm 147, 4, God counts the number of the stars. He calls them by name. And we're told here in this passage of all the untold, the uncounted, the unseen stars in the universe, God has set aside a special star to carry out His judgment. As a matter of fact, He's given the star a name, Wormwood. 
Let me explain this to you. Wormwood is a plant. It's prolific over in the Middle East, especially around Palestine. And uh, horticulturists tell us that wormwood is the most bitter plant on the planet. Now, here's what I want you to get about this. If that star falls in the fresh waters of this world, the rivers, the streams, the lakes, immediately they're going to become so bitter that humans cannot drink it. Matter of fact, the word wormwood, that literally means undrinkable. <clears throat> Can you imagine how many people are going to die of thirst? You know, one of the greatest poets, I think, uh, or poems, rather, ever written was entitled The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Anybody ever heard that poem? I know you've heard some words from it. Uh, it was written almost 700 years ago. I think the guy's name was Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Thank you, Jeff. Coleridge. And in that poem, there's a line I know you've heard. It's a famous line. It says, water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink. That's a perfect description of the day that we're being told about there. Now, I want you to look at verse 12. Next thing we have is the falling of the sun. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars. So as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. Now, I don't think I have to go into detail the ecological effects, folks. This is going to have upon the earth, knowing the sun is a total source of light, the total source of light energy on this earth. Now, you know, sometimes, and, and I know I've done this, I know I've heard other people do it, we complain about how bright the sun is. We complain about how hot the sun is. Maybe the reason we complain is because we don't see just how good God has been to us by giving us the sun. You realize how important the sun is? I heard about a science teacher asked her class, uh, young kids, a question. said, which is more important, the moon or the sun? One little boy spoke up real quick. <coughs> he said, well, the moon is, of course. He said, because the moon gives us light at night when we need it. The sun just gives us light in the daytime when we don't need it. Well, the fact of the matter is, folks, the sun shines all the time. The sun gives us light. Without the power, without the heat and the light of the sun, there'd be no life here on this planet. Now, let me ask you, before I move to the final point, why is it that only a third of the earth and sky is affected in these judgments? I mean, why is it that God is limited? Why doesn't, again, He just let loose the judgment all at once again? Well, as I said before, God has no pleasure, no delight in the perishing of the wicked people. I believe that while this judgment's going on, God oversees this judgment with a firm hand, but He does it with a broken heart. I want you to see the final thing tonight, if my voice will hold out to get us there. Look at verse 13. There's a solemn declaration that's made. Through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels, which are yet to sound. The war trumpets have been blown, but the woe trumpets, they're yet to sound. Now, what is being said in verse 13 is simple, folks. We're being told the worst is yet to come. We're being told you haven't seen anything yet. God's greatest judgment is yet reserved. And look at verse 13. We're told it's reserved for the inhabitants of the earth. Now, let me a little language work here with you. There's something interesting here that I want you to get. There are two words in the Greek language for people who live on earth. 
One word speaks of just, you know, of course, people who live on the earth because that's where all living people reside. That's not the word that's used here. The word that's used in this passage, folks, refers to a certain kind of people who not only live on the earth, but they live for the earth. It's referring to people who have settled down, have put their roots into this world and made this world not only their home, but made this world their God. He's talking about people who love this world, this world's system, this world's philosophy, this world's way of doing things. Now, what does James tell us in James 4, 4? It says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. In other words, if you're going to be friends with the world, you're going to be an enemy of God. So what God's doing, folks, he is giving one more warning before the gavel of his judgment finally falls. Someone has said one time that there are over 600 warnings in the Bible about hell. 600 warnings. So these woes, the trumpets that we'll get into next week, they represent God's last warning to a lost and rebellious world. This angel here that gives these woes, that's what he's doing. Here's the warning. Here's the final one that you're going to get. And here's the thing I want you to grasp tonight. God, he can sound, he can flash the lights. But folks, he can't keep you from crossing the tracks of devastation if that's what you want to do. See, the decision's yours. God can give the warning, but if you refuse to heed the warning, then you've made your decision. Reminds me of two men that were sitting in a restaurant one night, and they got into an argument. And one man said to the other one, he said, well, you can just go to hell then. Well, there was a Christian sitting beside that guy, or behind that guy, and he heard the conversation. He leaned back, tapped the guy on the shoulder. He said, hey, buddy. He said, I want you to know something. I've been reading the directions about how to get there and how not to get there, and I can tell you, you don't have to go if you don't want to. Well, let me tell you something, friend. You don't have to go if you don't want to. And it's simple. Uh, maybe you don't know, but it's so simple. If you will accept the judgment of God for your sins that he poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross, if you'll surrender to Jesus Christ and accept that work on the cross, Jesus taking your place, facing the judgment that you should have faced, if you'll take that, surrender your life to Christ, you'll avoid the judgment that's to come. You'll avoid the wrath that's to come. Say, how can you say that? Because God's word says so. First Thessalonians 1, verse 10, Paul says, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Now, I know people want to argue that verse, say, no, he's talking about hell. No, he's not. The wording's not the same. Not the wrath to come. The wrath that we've been reading. You want to escape that? That's escape the wrath to come. If you bow your heads with me. I hope that every person here has made that conscious decision to follow Jesus Christ, to surrender to him, to accept the work that he did on the cross as payment for your sins, facing the judgment that you should have faced. If not, you need to do that tonight. Now, if you're a Christian and you say, you know, I get depressed, I get worried when I read Revelation about the tribulation period. 
Friend, I've already told you, if you're a Christian, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, he saved you. You're saved from the wrath to come. Now, that's something to be thankful for. Christian, that's something to, to, to be grateful for. God's grace has saved you. You're saved not just from hell, but from the wrath to come. Father, I thank you that your word encourages us. I thank you that it informs us. I thank you most of all that if we allow it to do so, your word can change us. God, I pray for those here tonight maybe that, that don't know you. They have never surrendered their life to Christ. They've never established that relationship with you that they would do so. And I pray for those here tonight who are Christians. Maybe they, they do uh, get concerned or they get worried or they, they uh, have anxiety when they study the time of tribulation in the book of Revelation. Father, I pray that you'll speak to their heart and they'll realize all this does for us is just prove to us your sovereignty and your grace. And then, Father, I, I pray for those here tonight who maybe they've been praying about a situation or a, a problem that they've been facing and they wonder, Father, if you hear their prayers. I pray they'll take to heart what we studied, that you not only hear them, but you hold on to them. And, Father, you love us enough to hold each prayer that we've ever uttered. I thank you for that love. I thank you for displaying that love for us at Calvary's cross. Father, I pray that we would live with a sense of urgency, realizing that the time is short, realizing that it's coming and no man can work. So we'd be about your work while it's daylight, while we can still work. Forgive us, Father, for not taking advantage of the situations you give us. Forgive us for not living a life that illustrates the love of Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you again for the power of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Would you stand, please?